It is good to be with you all this morning. You notice Christmas is coming? <laughs> yeah, you can't miss it this week, can you? Most of us still have leftover turkey in our fridge, but everybody's moved on. Commercials have moved on. The stores have moved on. Your neighbor who has too much time on his hands has moved on. Everywhere you look, the world is looking ahead to December 25th. And that's not a bad thing. Christmas has always been a season, not just a day. It's a period of time when things just kind of feel a little different. And this has been a year when things feel a little different, has it not? Well, as you can see, Christmas has arrived at VBC as well. And this week does launch our Advent series. And like the word Christmas itself, Advent speaks of a coming, a coming, an arrival. A coming, in this case, of someone so notable that it is worth the entire world spending an entire season commemorating the event. And that coming was of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to make this season full. We want our hearts unmasked and our worship undistanced from the Christ we come to adore. And so this morning, I want to encourage us to take advantage of the season of Christmas to prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas and to avoid two common pitfalls. And the first is this, sentimentality. When we hang a shining star upon the highest bough, we need to remember Christmas is much deeper than this, right? It's easy to cultivate a seasonal feeling rather than a spiritual fervor. The spirit of Christmas is not what happens at the 85-minute mark of all 40 Hallmark Christmas movies coming out this year. And if the mention of a Hallmark Christmas movie made you gag, then you might be in the other ditch, which is cynicism. It's been a rough year for many in our world and for many in our church. The bitterness of trials can cause us to see all those blinking Christmas lights like some cruel culture just winking at us to mock our real world suffering. Like the Grinch, the cynic just wishes he could find some way to keep Christmas from coming. But from Moses on, God has taught us that feasting and worship go together, especially when our hearts are heavy laden. So lay down your bah humbug and enter a world of lights and smells and color. So if sentimentality and cynicism are the two yawning slopes to each side, what is the road we should walk instead? Let me suggest that it is the road of sanctification, the road of worship. And to turn our hearts towards this road over the course of the next month, we are going to be looking at a very fascinating Christmas, a coming of Christ, not to Bethlehem as a baby, but his coming to Bethany. It's a Christmas that Bethany would never forget. It's a Christmas that ignited the gossip of a nation. It's a Christmas full of tears and heartache, as well as miracles and unimaginable joy. It is also the Christmas that will set in motion the final phase of Jesus' mission for which his infant birth had brought him into this world. And finally, finally, it is a Christmas that literally took place around this time of the year, being only a few months from when Jesus will die at Passover 
in early April. So come with me then, if you would, and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We will read verses 1 through 16 together. As you are able, if you are able, would you stand to honor the reading of God's word this morning? And we read John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. You may be seated. You've seen that the theme for this morning is faith. And this may not at first seem to be the most obvious text for that theme, but I think it will prove to be very rich indeed. It's like a theological bone broth. It's pretty bland when you sample it after 12 minutes. Pretty flavorful after you've been simmering it for 12 hours. A number of weeks ago, I opened our discussion in God's Word with the question, what is faith? And we discussed that faith is a trust in God that involves the reason of the mind having been convinced of the evidence. And today, I want to extend that discussion by asking, what does faith do? It's the practical follow-up to our conversation on the nature of faith. And so if you've seen our title this morning, it's Adeste Fidelis, the Latin title, O Come All Ye Faithful. And I think our passage is going to challenge us to do that today. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning from our passage in verses 1 through 7 is that faith waits. Faith waits. In verse 1, we saw a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so we pick up this story with news of a sick man named Lazarus. And we're given a few identifying details. He lived in Bethany, which is a town just outside of Jerusalem, a couple miles on the ridge of the Mount of Olives, just to the east. And he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. 
This is the first time we meet this family in John. But in Luke 10, we find out Jesus has visited this family before. And you've probably heard the story, right? Martha is a little upset. Mary's not helping with the dishes. They have a little exchange. That whole story has happened prior to this visit. But notice that when John says, hey, do you remember this Mary and Martha? He doesn't reference the ones who were arguing about you know, my sister's not helping me in the kitchen, so would you tell her to do that? that? That's the story that we probably know the most, that comes to mind most readily. But that's not the story that John identifies this Mary by. She is the one who anointed Jesus with costly perfume on his feet and wiped it with her hair. Do you remember when he preached that passage a while back? Yeah, me neither. Because we haven't got there yet. It's in chapter 12. This story was so well known and John was so confident that people knew the Mary who had sacrificially anointed the Savior's feet that he identifies her by something he hasn't even told us she's done yet. But we'll get to that later. And notice also here, John refers to Jesus not as somebody calling him Lord, but simply identifies Jesus as the Lord. John hasn't used this phrase before in his gospel because he reserves it to refer to Jesus from the perspective of his being the risen king. And so just as verse 2 refers to something that hasn't happened yet in Mary's life, but the readers are aware of it, so he uses a title that refers to something that hasn't happened yet in Jesus' life, but the readers are also aware of. As a side note, As we prepare to remember Jesus in the manger this season, don't forget he is the Lord who currently sits enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father. These two sisters, loving their brother, knowing the power of Jesus, reach out and ask for help. Verse 3, so the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And notice, and Ben pointed this out in our time of sermon prep, he doesn't even, they don't even mention Lazarus' name. This is simply the one whom you love. Much of the life of Jesus is not recorded in the Gospels. John himself tells us that in his Gospel. And I would have loved to have known just what the relationship between these, were, these people were like because Jesus was unusually close to this family and they were unusually close to him. And the word for love here is not the typical word for self-sacrificial love that we see in most of the of the New Testament, agape. It is the love of close family affection, phileo. Your dear Lazarus, your buddy, your good friend is sick. If Jesus had healed entire villages of the sick without any previous relationship, What won't he do for such a close friend? So look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Notice the response of Jesus to the news and the message he wants taken back to the family in Bethany. The sickness of Lazarus is not a pointless sickness. It has a purpose. 
to glorify God and to glorify the Son of God. For Lazarus, the outcome of his current situation is not going to be death. Now you may be thinking, but wait, I know this story, the dude dies. Probably should have put a spoiler alert on that. Jesus, however, notice, did not say that the story of Lazarus wouldn't involve death. He said it wouldn't end in death. And that is a really important distinction, as we shall see. It's also really important for us to remember in our lives. John, knowing where this story is going, and that the next events might give the impression that Jesus was being callous, that he didn't care much for these three, he specifically then tells us again, Jesus loved each person in Bethany. And he mentions all three. He loved Martha. He loved her sister. He loved Lazarus. And that's why Jesus stays two more days and delays coming to their help. Verse 7, Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea, to Judea again. So only after two whole days does Jesus finally call his disciples and announce that they are leaving for the region of Bethany. And what must Martha and Mary have thought when the messengers came back from Jesus? And Jesus wasn't with them. A couple quick lessons for us here. So we consider that faith waits. And the first is this. Remember God's love. Remember God's love. At Christmas, we see a little baby who came into this world because God so loved the world. We are reminded that this newborn king became the king who was slain, who became the king who saves. And that for those who have placed their faith in the risen king, God loves you. More than that, God likes you. He really does. He really does. He is not ashamed or angry with you when he disciplines you. He is not indifferent or callous when your suffering comes quickly or lingers long. As the Father loves the Son, so in the Son, the Father loves you. Faith clings to the truth of his love even when it cannot understand his delay. As the old hymn said, when we cannot trust, trace his hand, we trust his heart. Or perhaps more simply, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And secondly this morning, let God cook. Let God cook. The best glory takes time. Sometimes lots and lots of time. When the answers are slow in coming, answers like, how will I fix this seemingly impossibly broken relationship? When will I finally find a job that will meet my family's needs? When will this pandemic be over and things get back to normal? When will they figure out what's causing my health problems and how to relieve my symptoms? When will I find my future spouse? When the answers are slow in coming, trust the chef. Trust the chef. Dinner's coming. This is not to end in death for you. 
even if you die. Whatever is going on in your life today, because of the promises of God, such as we read in Romans 8.28, we may confidently say for the child of God, this is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it, and it is for your everlasting good. Faith waits. Sometimes faith waits and waits and waits and waits. Abraham waited until his body was as good as dead before God gave him the son of promise. Joseph waited in slavery through his teens and 20s before being elevated by God to a position of power and deliverance. Moses waited until he was 80 years old before leading Israel into freedom. Faith trusts the promise of God even if it has to wait. Many meals and some of you may have discovered this over Thanksgiving, are actually pretty disgusting and even dangerous to consume before they've been taken from the oven and are fully done. The turkey just isn't that appealing when it goes in, is it? Do not grab the tool the blacksmith is making when it glows in the furnace. Wait until it's finished, tempered, and cooled. Some of us are more patient to let a certain quarterback cook in the final minutes of a tense football game than we are to let God cook in the circumstances of our lives. And only one of those is actually guaranteed to work out in the end. To wait patiently, joyfully, trustingly is one of the most important things faith does. But faith isn't all waiting. It also involves a willingness to work hard and to work long in accomplishing the will of our Father. And that's what we see next in verses 8 through 11. Faith works. Faith works. John 11, 8 through 11, we begin there in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? If you recall, Jesus hadn't ended his time in Jerusalem as a big hit. In fact, if you recall, it ended with them trying to give him a big hit on the head with rocks. The disciples had not forgotten and they were not eager to relive the experience. To them, the idea of heading back to any city in Judea was simply nuts. They needed to wait until things cooled down. In fact, this is likely their explanation in their minds for why Jesus didn't immediately go to help Lazarus. They're assuming Jesus for once is demonstrating good sense and avoiding danger. They were wrong. Not about Jesus having good sense, but about what good sense motivates a person to do. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is the principle. In a minute we'll get to verse 11, and that's Jesus' application. The principle, though, here is simple. When it's time to work, work. When it's time to work, work. When there's a clear line of obedience for us to follow, we follow it. For the ancient world, the daylight hours were divided into 12 chunks, and that's when work happened. The sun might be low in the sky, but if it's still up there, there's still work to be done. And for the disciples, this probably seemed like an almost petty illustration, but I hope we can appreciate 
the language here is being both simple and true on the surface, but rich in illusion as the very light of the world tells this to his disciples. As long as he was still among his disciples, there was work to be done. The mission was not over, even if it was almost over. If you don't accomplish the mission while there is still time, then you are left in the true darkness of not being able to work anymore. What you pretended was caution will be revealed to have been laziness or a lack of courage. Jesus makes it clear what the application of this lesson is there in verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go, so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Is it dangerous in Judea? Yes. Is Jesus going anyway? Yes. Jesus' delay was not motivated by fear. He didn't wait two days as he hemmed and hawed over whether he should go back into a dangerous situation. It was motivated by his obedience, waiting until the time the Father had set. And once it was time to get to work, Jesus feared no man. And this must be true of us as well. Our first lesson from this section is simply this. Be brave. Be brave. Bravery has fallen on hard times. I don't mean what is literally masquerading as bravery, veiled villains burning down things they don't like. That is nothing more than a Molotov cocktail of anger, envy, and cowardice. I mean true bravery, a commitment to do what is right in the middle of a risky situation. Faith demands obedience, period. Faith is not cross the street after looking both ways and being sure it is safe to do so. Faith is jump out of this airplane when the light turned green and your jump master says go. Faith, true obedient faith, may cost you. We used to teach this to our kids. When was the last time you saw a little kid's book like the one I ended up seeing in our family room? I'm not sure where it came from this last week. I flipped through this little book that was sitting on our couch that was simply called Tell Me About Jesus. It's from the 1940s, and it had a short chapter inside called Be Brave. And in it, you can see a picture here of the actual page in question. A father's walking with his son and explaining how Jesus willingly went to the crowds he knew were bent on killing him because that was his mission from the father. And I want to focus on a little exchange here. Did God take care of him, Bobby asked, so he didn't get hurt? He did get hurt, son. But God helped him to be brave. God helped him not to be afraid of being hurt. Bobby thought a while. I want to be brave, he decided, but I don't want to get hurt. I do not want you to get hurt either, Bobby, and I will try to keep you from getting hurt. But sometimes it is better to be hurt than it is to run away. That is a principle of faith that we need to recover to teach our children and to model ourselves it's a good reminder for all of us. And just in case you're wondering if this was written by some dude hopped up on toxic masculinity, it was actually written by a mom. 
Do not rush in foolishly where angels fear to tread because impulsivity and confusing our feelings with God's leading causes us to think that's the course of bravery. But when God has made his will plain in his scriptures, then we must obey and obey bravely. We must also obey diligently. And that's our second lesson from this section. Be diligent. When confronted with a job, the two complaints I hear most often from random children are, it's too hard and it takes too long. Faith is trusting that God will not send us on any task nor place us in any circumstance not that's too that's not too hard for us cuz he will but that he will not provide the resources necessary to endure for his glory and for our good that might be hard for you to imagine today in the circumstances of your life but we worship a god who is thankfully even bigger than our imagination And I cannot tell you what the resolution of your trial or your task will be other than that it will, through your obedience, result in the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and your good. And that it will not end ultimately in your death, even if you die. Take courage in this, brothers and sisters. These are not empty platitudes. These are not positive mantras we recite to induce a positive psychological state. These are the bedrock convictions we have about reality upon which we live and move and have our being. This is faith as a noun and as a verb, as the what we are convinced is true and the how we cling to it to the end. Because perhaps more than any other sign, the greatest evidence of a heart of faith is seen in someone who simply but doggedly follows after God. And that's our last point this morning. Faith follows in verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So a little humor in these verses. The disciples hear Jesus use the word asleep, and they assume he's speaking some news that Lazarus had finally begun to recover, to rest. Uh, The use of falling asleep, which became very common in the church to refer to death, was not common in the Old Testament. It wasn't common in the time of Christ. So we can excuse the disciples for not connecting the dots there. It's not surprising that they assumed incorrectly, especially after they had heard Jesus say that Lazarus' death would not lead to death, would not end in death. It's not surprising that they would assume, okay, then that must be good news. Just like you said, he's turned the corner. What they didn't understand was why Jesus would put himself in such danger then to go to a man recovering from illness and wake him up. Let the poor man sleep. Let him recover his strength in a culture with a strong hospitality set of rules 
Why would you show up at the door of a guy just beginning to recover from a deathly illness who would then feel obligated to try to get up and take care of you and be a good host and exhaust his strength and probably put himself right back on death's door again? That's the last thing he needs right now. They're thinking in the last thing you need right now, Jesus, to go back there. Or so they thought. In actuality, Jesus showing up is the only thing Lazarus needs right now because he isn't resting. He's dead. Using the same word the Jews had used when they demanded Jesus tell them plainly whether or not he was the Messiah, Jesus now tells his disciples plainly their friend was dead. More than this, though, he says he is in fact glad, and he uses a word commonly translated as rejoicing, that he was not present in the final days of Lazarus' life, but that he had delayed and was not journeying after Lazarus, who is not journeying until after Lazarus had died. Why would that make Jesus glad to know he missed that moment? It was because, unlike the disciples, Jesus didn't know how this would end. What would have been a miracle of healing is about to become a miracle of resurrection. What would have been another footnote in the life of Jesus is about to become the capstone sign of the Messiah. What would have been of encouragement to Lazarus, Martha, and Mary is now about to become undeniable proof that their faith in Christ was indeed faith in God himself. And the disciples were going to get a front row seat. And so as we've seen over and over, the intended result of the life of Christ and all that he does and all that he says is to evoke our belief in what we have witnessed in the Savior. The delay being over, the time being at hand, Jesus says, it's time to move. So they prepare to set out on a journey. We saw at the end of John 10 that Jesus retreated to the place across the Jordan that had been the place of John the Baptist's earthly and early ministry. Back in John 1.28, we learned that this place was called Bethany across the Jordan. Just to kind of give you a sense of where we're at, uh, Jerusalem is down here. And Jesus has gone to Bethany across the Jordan. Some people believe it's about here somewhere over there, but it is probably best to actually place this location all the way up here in the far north. And so Jesus is a full four days journey away. And so he has tarried until news has come supernaturally, most likely in this case that Lazarus is dead. And then he is about to begin a four day journey down to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. So it's, it's a significant journey, and you can think the disciples, being all the way up in the north and outside of Herod's immediate territory, are thinking, whew, we got a little safety up here. Why are you going back into the frying pan? And Jesus says, no, I'm going all the way from the farthest, safest corner of this area. I'm going all the way back to the epicenter of trouble. Verse 16. Our final verse this morning. And by the way, do stay tuned because the reason Jesus chose to wait for a four-day journey and not a three-day journey or not a two-day journey 
is actually kind of cool, but I won't steal the next guy's thunder. Verse 16, Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Thomas often gets a hard time in Sunday school. Right? Thomas is called what? Doubting Thomas. You remember he had difficulty accepting the reality of the resurrection and only believed after Jesus had appeared to him personally. To be fair, the disciples had rejected the testimony of Mary as well, and they only believed when they saw Jesus. So, you know, cut him some slack. But I want to suggest Thomas should really be called loyal Thomas. Loyal Thomas. Thomas was committed to Jesus. We only see him th- speak three times, and all three of them are in the Gospel of John. And all are affirmations of his love for Jesus and his determination to follow him. Not knowing that Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, not understanding that Jesus must die for the sins of the world yet, Thomas knows one thing. If Jesus goes, I go. If Jesus goes, I go. Looking around the room at the confused and scared disciples, Thomas makes a simple call. This is probably a suicide trip. So be it. So be it. That is faith in action. He trusted Jesus so completely that death itself was not a deterrent to following him. It's pretty special. If the life of Jesus took place in Middle Earth, Thomas would be Samwise Gamgee. The faithful friend with no thought for his own personal safety. The only other times we see him speak is once in chapter 14 when Jesus says he's leaving and Thomas's only concern is, how am I going to find you? Tell me the way because I don't know where you're going. I want to follow. And then finally, in chapter 20, having lost the one he so loyally had followed, he struggled to accept that Jesus could be alive. But when confronted with the truth, the first thing out of his mouth is what? My Lord and my God. An imperfect man, to be sure, but an example of faith for us to follow, teaching us how to follow Christ. A couple lessons as we close. First is this, die with Jesus. Die with Jesus. Unwittingly, Thomas identifies the very path of obedience for us all. If we wish to live in Christ, we must die with Christ. We must, as Paul said, be crucified with him. We surrender ourselves entirely. We cast off our perceived rights, our perceived identity. We declare that we believe Jesus was born in a manger, that he died for sins, that he rose in victory, and that he offers forgiveness from God on the basis of his righteousness to all who believe. Christ's life followed the arc of humility, suffering, death, and resurrection to glory. The arc of every single believer's life will include the same. Do not fear it. Do not flee it. If today you are convinced of the truthfulness of Scripture regarding the gospel, the good news of Jesus, then come and die with him and then live. 
Because our second and our last lesson is live for Jesus. Faith follows. If the wise men could follow the glow of one star in the vast expanse of celestial lights, then can we not faithfully follow the Son of God, who is the light of the world? He is the flame beside which all other lights are simply made undetectable. This Christmas, do not merely reflect, but be renewed. Wait in hope. Work mightily. Follow faithfully. Adeste fidelis. O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. Come, though you are young. Come, though you are weary. Come, though you have known the Savior for decades on end. Come, though you have only moments ago believed the good news. Come, and come in faith to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your Son. And we know if that's alone what you had done, we would still be lost because we lack that capacity in ourselves to even place our faith in what he has done. We've been told that faith itself is a gift. And so this Christmas, may we receive that gift. May we receive it perhaps for the first time, accepting the truthfulness of what Christ has done for us. Or may we renew the faith in which we stand, the faith by which we live day to day. May we cling to those truths that we have believed in. May we have a faith that is not simply an object but it is an action. May it characterize the lives of your people this season. May we, walking in the light of Christ, be able to reflect that light to a world that is putting up so many lights, but they cannot chase away the darkness of the soul. This alone your Son can do. And so as we close this morning, fill our hearts with the good news those angels declared to us so long ago in a field outside of Bethlehem. May we live it and may we shout it to the glory of God and to the glory of the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.